This is broadcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off this week, so please enjoy this encore broadcast recorded on August 17th, 2022. I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. You go, girl. You have my support as long as you're out of office. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in uh, in LA. Yes, it's a flagship station, and we are heard on many other fine affiliates, coast to coast and around the globe, blanketing planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Once again, with more show than I can afford to spend, listing all of our many affiliates. Hope we you don't love. mind. We do love them, but we got a lot of show. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. All right, coming up, we will be joined momentarily by the great national security Blogger and journalist Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel for the first time since the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago last week and the federal court's unsealing of the warrant revealing that Donald Trump, among other things, is being criminally investigated under provisions of the Espionage Act and other uh, federal statutes. After stealing loads of classified, highly sensitive national security documents, from the White House upon leaving office last year. Marcy, who uh, tweeted that Trump was likely being investigated under the Espionage Act, which he is, before the search warrant was actually revealed to confirm that last Friday, well, she, as usual, has a lot of insight on all of this and can explain why prosecutors appear to be closing in on Trump and where the investigation goes from here. Yay, because it's all really, really complicated. Yes, it is. Though if anyone can uh, make sense of it all, it would be Marcy. So stand by for that. First, uh, however, it was primary election day in both Wyoming and Alaska on Tuesday. And, of course, the biggest news of the night, as expected, Wyoming's conservative Republican U.S. House member Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick was soundly defeated in the state's GOP primary for its one single at-large U.S. House seat. A not surprising but still stunning turn of events for Congresswoman Liz Cheney, once revered by Republicans who gave her a House leadership position as chair of the House Republican Conference during her freshman term in Congress. She was made the number three in uh, House leadership. That after being first elected in 2016, during the same election, by the way, that Donald Trump was elected president. And, of course, being once hated by Democrats, at least until she decided to finally speak up against Donald Trump after he incited the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and was subsequently impeached for it with Cheney's vote and that of nine other Republicans in the House and all of the Democrats. 
That before she would then go on to star as vice chair of the U.S. House Select Committee investigating January 6th and Trump's many attempts to steal the 2020 election and earned the love of many Democrats. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73 percent of votes, Cheney said at her concession speech in Wyoming on Tuesday. I could have easily done the same tonight, she added, but it would have required her to go along with Trump's election lie, which is a path that she would not take, she said. She lost her primary election on Tuesday against the Trump-backed Harriet Hageman by a huge reported margin, currently about 37 points. There have been, of course, many reactions to all of this over the hours since the race was called for Hageman and since Cheney gracefully conceded her long-expected defeat. I'll share some of her reaction momentarily, but to share a few others uh, from overnight, our friend progressive journalist John Nichols at The Nation uh, tweeted, uh, quote, Liz Cheney's work on the January 6th committee has been terrific. Praise to her for that, but... Cheney remains a right-wing zealot whose fierce social conservatism, embrace of militarism, and dismissal of climate concerns pushed the GOP toward extremism. Of course, he writes, it would be better for Cheney to win Wyoming's uh, GOP primary, but the future of the Republican Party should not be a choice between Trumpism or Cheneyism. The GOP's current extremism has deep roots, and Liz Cheney planted Many of them. She did indeed. Uh, Trump critic Liz Cheney, he added, had been reaching out to Wyoming Democrats seeking crossover votes to help her survive a Trump-backed Republican primary challenge. But it's a tough sell for someone who endorsed Trump twice and voted with him 93 percent of the time. Nichols writes, if you want a measure of the degeneration of American politics, here it is. The woman who defended the Iraq war as a success and condemned John McCain for opposing torture was widely viewed as the, quote, sensible choice in Wyoming's Republican primary. Vox.com's Ian Milheiser tweeted, quote, I will say this for Liz Cheney. She was wrong about all but one thing, but that one thing was the most important thing, he writes, and she gave up more than most of us have to try to save it. Our friend John Fugelsang, comedian and radio host at SiriusXM, tweeted, quote, In 18 years, we've gone from Dick Cheney killing a million people for a lie to Liz Cheney killing her own career for the truth. All of that said, I just want to note that it is appalling that due to threats against her life from Republicans, Liz Cheney was, by and large, unable to appear at public campaign rallies in Wyoming for this contest. Whatever you think of her, it is a dark day in the United States when candidates cannot appear at their own campaign rallies. But John Nichols is right. She helped create... This Frankenstein's monster that we're all dealing with, that she and her party and all of the rest of us are now forced to grapple with, that doesn't make it any less dark of a day that America has devolved uh, to this grim state of affairs. But during her concession remarks, Cheney made it clear that while she lost on Tuesday, she is nowhere near done with politics nor with her fight 
to ensure that Donald Trump never serves another day in office. At the heart of our democratic process are elections. They are the foundational principle of our Constitution. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. Our republic relies upon the goodwill of all candidates for office to accept honorably the outcome of elections. And tonight, Harriet Hegeman has received the most votes in this primary. She won. I called her to concede the race. This primary election is over, but now the real work begins. Real work, what does she mean by that? The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Speaking at Gettysburg of the great task remaining before us, Lincoln said that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. As we meet here tonight, that remains our greatest and most important task. We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. This is a fight for all of us together. I'm a conservative Republican. I believe deeply in the principles and the ideals on which my party was founded. I love its history, and I love what our party has stood for but I love my country more. That was Liz Cheney conceding uh, on Tuesday night in Wyoming in her U.S. House uh, Republican primary. And yeah, she's running. She uh, clearly, <laughs> as by the way, uh, Heather Digby Parton told us on this show like a year and a half ago. True. She did say that. Whether that... Uh, I mean, will, Digby did say Digby that. Digby said yes. that, yeah. And wh- whether uh, Cheney will run for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nomination or as an independent candidate to serve as a spoiler against Trump if he's the Republican candidate in 2024, well, that all remains to be seen. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that in the days ahead. With her loss on Tuesday, just two of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump will be on the ballot this November, with the others either choosing not to run again, that four of them, or being defeated in their own uh, Republican primaries, another four of them. 
As the Lincoln Project folks, uh, a group of never-Trump Republicans, as they tweeted in response to Cheney's primary loss, quote, Tonight, the nation marks the end of the Republican Party. What remains shares the name and branding of the traditional GOP, but is in fact an authoritarian nationalist cult dedicated only to Donald Trump. I definitely agree with that. I mean, she is more conservative than Trump. And I think what this shows is that Wyoming primary voters are not Republicans. They are Trumpists. Yep. In any event, Hageman, who defeated uh, Cheney with Trump's backing on Tuesday, she was formerly, by the way, a a Republican never-Trumper herself. And part of the so-called GOP resistance to uh, Trump's 2016 (laughs) candidacy. She worked on various schemes to prevent his nomination. During the party nomination back then, she called him, quote, racist and xenophobic. Uh, Before that, she was, uh, by the way, she worked on Liz Cheney's unsuccessful 2014 Senate campaign. But you know what? Six years of uh, the fantastic job as uh, president and former president by Donald Trump has apparently turned Hageman around. Now she is full-fledged MAGA and uh, parroting the former president's lies that the 2020 election was stolen from him. She will now run in November for Wyoming's single at-large U.S. House seat against Democrat Lynette Graybull, who won the Democratic primary against two other candidates on Tuesday. But it is Wyoming, where Trump got 70 percent of the state's votes in 2020, Uh, defeating Biden by about 45 percent, 45 points. So, you know, don't hold your breath for Ms. Ms. Graybull. The other state to hold primaries on Tuesday was, of course, the great state of Alaska, where things were really no less bizarre on Tuesday night, though in a uh, very different way. Uh, First, even though, like Wyoming, Alaska has just one congressional at-large district for the whole state, There were actually two elections held relating to that one seat, which had been held for 49 years by Republican Congressman Don Young, who died suddenly and unexpectedly earlier this year. On Tuesday, they held both the special election to fill the remainder of Don Young's term through the end of the year and a primary election for the full term beginning in January. The primary for the special election was for the special was held a few months ago and now making it all even stranger. In 2020, the state voted to institute both an open primary system where everyone runs at once and the top vote getters go on to the general election and a ranked choice voting system in the general elections for uh, for congressional seats. So on Tuesday, three candidates ran in the special general election For the one House seat to the remainder of the term, just a few months, two Republicans and one Democrat, because the uh, top four vote getters actually from the primary go on to the general. But one of them, an independent candidate, dropped out after the primary. And so it's always uh, it always took a long time to tally votes in the huge state of Alaska, where ballots are actually sent back, flown back to central headquarters in Fairbanks, as I recall, to be tallied. Uh, And now with ranked choice, well, it's going to take even longer as of this hour, as we go to air. 70% of the votes or so are tallied. The Democrat, Mary Peltola, 
who would be the first Alaskan native to be elected to Congress if she wins. Well, she's currently leading the two Republicans in the special house race. In second place is some lady named Sarah Palin. (laughs) You might have heard of her. Currently, Peltola has 38% of the vote, Sarah Palin has 32% of the vote, and Nick Begich, another Republican, has a little over 28% of the vote. But remember, in ranked choice voting, if no candidate gets more than 50% in the first round of counting, the person who is in last place gets removed, and the second place choices of their voters then gets distributed to the remaining candidates. So if Begich, a Republican, uh, ends up losing his voters uh, second place choices as they are asked to rank them on the ballot, well, those will get redistributed and uh, counting between the two remaining candidates in this example would be Peltola and Palin counting commences once again to then determine the winner. State officials have said, therefore, we will not have a winner announced potentially until the end of August, until the end of this month. Whether Begich's voters hated Palin enough to vote for a Democrat as their second choice, well, that is what we will be learning in the coming days, as it's actually now possible that a Democrat could win the U.S. House seat in Alaska. At the same time, There was a primary for the full House term on Tuesday with about 30 candidates running in that uh, race. And Peltola, Palin and Baggage all appear set to advance to the uh, general election in November when they will run ranked choice yet again. The fourth candidate uh, to be uh, to go to the general that has yet to be called with about 70 percent of the vote tallied as noted. The other primary of note for uh, in Alaska was for the U.S. Senate, another open primary where everyone runs at once and the top four go to the general election. As Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, who voted to convict Donald Trump after his second impeachment trial, well, she is facing a Trump-backed opponent named Kelly Chewbacca. Both of them will advance to the general election in November. It's now unclear who the other two candidates will be, uh, but Democrat Patricia Chesbro or Cheesebro will likely be one of them. More on Alaska results, no doubts, in the days ahead. Next week, Florida, New York, and Oklahoma hold primaries next Tuesday. And Marcy Wheeler is standing by in Ireland to discuss what we know and still don't about last week's search at Mar-a-Lago and the potential for very big trouble for Donald Trump. Trouble that he could now be in after stealing incredibly sensitive, highly classified national security documents from the White House. The search for facts continues straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. 
Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Searching, 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 searching. Yeah, they, uh, we are still searching. They are still searching. Uh, we're all still searching for documents at Mar-a-Lago and answers to what the hell is going on in this nation and with our former president. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There is a lot we now know, but there is still much more that we do not know. Following the FBI's federal court-approved search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound in Florida last week, seeking to retrieve, as we now know, following the unsealing of the warrant, highly sensitive, classified national security documents that were stolen from the White House when the former president left office last year. The search by several dozen FBI agents based on the judge's probable cause finding that several federal statutes were likely being violated came after nearly a year and a half of much less aggressive and invasive efforts to try to retrieve those stolen documents. The National Archives and Records Administration, uh, which is in charge of collecting and cataloging all presidential records under the Presidential Records Act of 1975, mandating that essentially anything classified or not that a president touches in the White House during his or her administration is the official property, not of the president, but of the American people and is to be retained by the National Archives on our behalf. For months, they quietly worked with Trump and his team at at Mar-a-Lago to retrieve an unknown number of boxes of documents and other items that Trump had taken from the White House when he finally left office. Last February, we learned that they were able to retrieve some 15 boxes, the archives was, including what they noted uh, to be documents that were marked as classified, while also noting that many more such documents appeared to be missing from what they knew to have been taken by Trump. After failing to get those materials back, they made a criminal referral to the U.S. Department of Justice. The DOJ would eventually uh, subpoena Trump uh, for the rest of the documents some months later and even sent a top DOJ official who oversees the department's counterintelligence division down to Mar-a-Lago in June to work with Trump's attorneys to politely and quietly attempt to retrieve the subpoenaed material. Trump even came down, came out to say hello to that DOJ official, so Trump was obviously aware of what the department was seeking at the time. Various reports suggested some 10 boxes, as I recall, were then turned over to the uh, DOJ at that time. And a Trump attorney signed a certification that that was it. They had no more documents, classified or not, in the disgraced former president's possession. But then DOJ subpoenaed security camera footage from inside of Mar-a-Lago and reportedly discovered that even after the meeting with DOJ officials, people at Mar-a-Lago were seen entering and exiting one of the storage areas with boxes of documents. Which brings us to last week's warranted search of the president's home quarters and other areas of the private club's compound. 
when an inventory list of the retrieved items from that search was unsealed by the federal magistrate judge last week, it was revealed that some 11 sets of documents of various classification levels were retrieved by the FBI team, including four sets of documents marked as top secret, three sets of merely secret documents, and three sets of confidential documents, which is the lowest classification level, along with one set that was marked TSSCI, or Top Secret Secured Compartmented Information. That is an even higher level of classification than merely top secret, and it's usually reserved for documents seen to have extraordinarily high national security implications, which may only be viewed in a very secure setting and only by a very small group of people cleared to do so. That search was only allowed to happen after Attorney General Merrick Garland says he personally approved the search warrant that a federal magistrate judge was then asked to approve himself based on an affidavit explaining the necessity for the search and the reason why they had probable cause to believe a crime, or in this case, at least three different federal crimes, were committed, as referenced in the warrant. The affidavit, the underlying reason that law enforcement officials had reason to believe these crimes had been committed and that the documents were at Mar-a-Lago, well, that remains under seal, though Donald Trump has demanded that it be released in full, unredacted, Despite the national security issues, it may reveal and the sources and methods that led to the need for this immediate search in the first place. That is largely what we know, but there remains much more that we don't, such as why Trump stole the documents in the first place, what he intended to use them for, why he didn't give them back when repeatedly asked to do so, even after being warned that he appeared to be violating federal law, and whether or not the FBI and DOJ actually got back all of the documents they were seeking. And despite the warrant citing three different federal statutes that they had probable cause to believe had been violated, it is unknown whether the DOJ was merely seeking to retrieve the documents or if they have any actual intention of charging Donald Trump or others with violating those crimes. But when it comes to what we know and don't on matters related to Trump's <laughs> panoply of crimes, there is one person who always seems to know a little bit more somehow. I'm starting to think that maybe she is the mole uh, more than just about everybody else. In fact, she was uh, tweeting about the DOJ investigating Trump for violations of the Espionage Act long before I believe anybody else was. And certainly before that was confirmed with the unsealing of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant last Friday. Joining us now is the great Marcy Wheeler, the independent national security journalist at her site, EmptyWheel.net, and of course, a contributor to many other publications, including The Intercept, The Guardian, Politico, New York Times, and others. Oh, Marcy Wheeler, welcome back to the broadcast. I just hope we have enough to talk about today. Oh my gosh, it's been a very, very long seven months, it feels like. <laughs> I'm thinking a long six or seven years at this point, but I hear you. Uh, listen, I want to first sort of do a bit of Mar-a-Lago Search 101 with you, if you don't mind, just to establish what we know, don't know, and what it means. So let's run through a few items. 
I'm hoping you can give us some clear and simple explanations of based on what you know and and don't know. So I want to quickly step through the federal statutes, 18 U.S. Criminal Code uh, sections 793, 1519, and 21 uh, and 2071, as cited in the search warrant for the uh, uh, for which the DOJ and and federal judge both believe there was probable cause that Trump may have violated. So first, what is Section 793? It's a part of the Espionage Act that, in Trump's case, uh, probably prohibits retaining unauthorized retention of classified information and refusing to give it back when you are requested to. Now, before we get to the other uh, sections here, on this one, you tweeted well before the unsealing of the warrant on Friday when the public didn't know, but Trump did know because he was given a copy of the warrant uh, on, on the day that the search happened, that you, you seem to know that he was likely being investigated for Espionage Act crimes. Uh, you tweeted that day. I think it was that day. It was certainly before the uh, warrant was unsealed. Quote, why won't Trump tell us if he's under investigation? for violating the Espionage Act. Did the warrant list 18 U.S.C. 793, yes or no? How did you know that that was one of the things that the <laughs> DOJ had suspected? Um, because I cover these cases. Uh-huh. I've, you know, I've covered at least 10, probably 15 of these cases. The major precedents to, uh, to particularly to the retention of classified information at home, Mm-hmm. And I know what it takes to charge it. And what it takes to charge it is not, not only what, what it takes to charge it, but why DOJ would feel comfortable investigating that as opposed to a different law that Trump was trying to charge Hillary with that, that uh, prohibits uh, keeping classified information. And several reasons are, are seven, several reasons made it clear to me that it was going to be the Espionage Act. One is the the seriousness of it. I mean, if you're going to search the home of a former president, it's going to be something mm. big. Mm-hmm. But the other one is that um, he did the things that you're not supposed to do. Like, A, he is not authorized to have the information because of the Presidential Records Act, like you said, uh, which which was written for people like Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. And so mm-hmm. um, he, you know, for a year and a half, DOJ kept telling him, that's not yours, give it back. Not, not yours, give it back. Mm-hmm. And so each of those times he didn't give it back was him basically fulfilling one of um, one of the parts, one of the things you have to do to be charged with it, basically. So that was one thing. Another thing was, uh, was it classified? DOJ went to his house and said, dude, this is classified, give it back. Uh-huh. He blew that off. Another thing that you have to do, uh, another thing that it criminalizes is, is um, keeping classified information in places you're not supposed to keep it. One place you're not supposed to keep it is in a leather-bound safe in your a leather-bound box inside your hotel safe, inside your lobby, uh-huh. inside a golf resort that is littered with with um, foreign intelligence assets trying to steal the secrets of the former president. I mean, like I can think of few ways to store top-secret SCI information less securely, uh-huh. but it's but it but it's a part of the law that you have to you have to keep this stuff in special containers, and he kept it in his little leather box. Okay, so um, knowing that, and that was, of course, based on uh, the bits and pieces of information that we did know leading up to the uh, unsealing of the warrant. The other two uh, sections of the U.S. Criminal Code that was cited 
uh, as having probable cause. Section 1519, what's that? It's a form of obstruction, and um, it's unclear exactly what DOJ is going after, but one thing it would prohibit is mm-hmm. ripping up documents to try and prevent the archives from getting it, or eating, or flushing, or burning, all things that we know Trump has done, all of those um, are effectively efforts to keep presidential records, as you said, uh-huh. away from the archives. And in Trump's case, uh, there are known examples where um, his attempts to destroy or to conceal evidence is particularly uh, criminal and problematic because he destroyed and withheld evidence from the Mueller investigation, mm-hmm. from the first impeachment, from the second impeachment, mm-hmm. from the January 6th committee, um, probably for, from a bunch of other things. And each of those makes it worse, because he was basically, and, and he is. I mean, there was a leak via one of the right-wing journalists yesterday that said, you know, people close to Donald says he, you know, say he doesn't have to give this over because the archives will just give it to the January 6th committee. I'm like, that's a confession of obstruction. <laughs> You've just literally confessed to the elements of the offense for, for obstruction. And, and honestly, Brad, and this is something that I think virtually everyone is missing. Uh-huh. This is the one Trump is terrified of. Yeah, why? Um, well, let's say that he knows he withheld information from Mueller. Mm-hmm. Then DOJ gets that back, and if it was a conspiracy, I think that it extends the statutes of limitation for those crimes. So, in other words, if he if he hid the the smoke, I mean, we know that there were some smoking guns between him and Roger Stone. Uh-huh. If he hides the smoking gun between him and Roger Stone and is found in his little leather box next to the nuclear codes, mm-hmm. then DOJ could actually reopen the Russian investigation against him. Same with uh-huh. uh, his coercion of Ukraine. Same with, I mean, obviously the January 6th investigation is still ongoing, but. Uh, that would exacerbate his exposure for January 6th as well. So this could be uh, not just January 6th, but actually reach back that uh, if if the documents that he has is stuff that he was supposed to have turned over way back in the Mueller investigation, uh, et cetera, that could be among the documents that he uh, was was hanging on to at Mar-a-Lago. Now, just to be clear, Marcy, um, 1519 covers mutilating, destroying, concealing documents. You mentioned that we he, we know that he has done that with you know tearing up, flushing uh, various documents and so forth. We don't know that's the case here with the documents in uh, at, at Mar-a-Lago, right? We don't know. We haven't heard of, of any of those having been destroyed or disappeared so far, right? Not. Um, we know in when. When especially the Washington Post and CNN reported that the archives had made a criminal referral back in February, mm-hmm. the articles focused, as, as every journalist in the country has, on the classified information. Basically, you know, Trump returned 15 boxes and there was classified information, mm-hmm. and that led the archives to make a criminal referral. Mm-hmm. But those stories also focus on his destruction of evidence. And that leads me to believe that the sources for those stories mm-hmm. were telling them that it's a dual it's a dual exposure. In other words, like uh, the archives would have told the FBI if they're mm-hmm. going to make a criminal referral, they're going to say, look, you know, there are, uh, you know, they, they, like it was explicit. We know that some of the documents that 
uh, were responsive to subpoenas regarding January 6th, which uh-huh. is the investigation that, you know, the only investigation that we know of so far that got access to information that Trump had to turn over. Right. Some of those were ripped up. So some of those were, by definition, have already, by definition, been proven to be uh-huh. uh, documents pertinent to an investigation that Trump tried to destroy. That was so it. we know that the pattern is there, and the right. question is, did DOJ find additional examples of that at its home? There's a set of five boxes and um, a different set of documents that um, have attorney-client privilege documents in it. Uh, at least according to Fox News, which mm-hmm. is more reliable these days than, you know, other other outlets. And if that's the case, then there's something about those those five boxes and set of documents that led FBI to believe that um, that they could breach the privilege. I, I, and and that's crime fraud. And and. Well, uh, so that cr- crime fraud, meaning that it is not covered by attorney-client uh, privilege, because a crime you can't use the attorney-client privilege to cover up a crime, basically. Right. Let's just imagine if um, if Rudy Giuliani, because it's always Rudy, um, <laughs> told Donald Trump during the Mueller investigation, "Oh, don't turn over." We know, for example, that the Trump Organization withheld documents involving correspondence to Russia from the Mueller investigation. We know that. Mm-hmm. We've proven that. Okay. We know that um, uh, that the White House counsel didn't provide Congress the fullest version of the perfect transcript of the, of the uh, Trump call with Volodymyr Zelensky. Mm-hmm. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an example of con- uh, concealing a document that should have been released. We know that there's another version of a transcript of the the meeting um, in 2017 where Trump handed Israeli intelligence to Sergei Lavrov. Mm-hmm. That one, same thing. The document sort of got got altered and disappeared. If that, if the original of that document showed up in Donald Trump's little leather case, mm-hmm. then you know it. Then it just got back to the FBI, and the FBI can say, you know, this is this is an example of evidence that you withheld from Mueller. Yeah. So and, those are the kinds of things that they may look at that we know exist, and that it is, and and would not be protected by any kind of attorney-client privilege. Okay. Uh, section uh, the other uh, section very quickly here. Section twenty seventy one. Um, was the other one that was cited for a probable cause that he has violated. What's 2071? Basically removing official documents. Um, mm-hmm. The Presidential Record Act that you, that you described mm-hmm. doesn't have any teeth to it, but this criminalizes it. And okay. so I think it's basically an umbrella uh, law that, first of all, covers all the other documents that they've taken that belong to the archives that Trump didn't, that the ones that aren't classified or mm-hmm. proof of a crime. But also, it's a fallback. Like, if, if all of a sudden Donald Trump says, I'm, you know, I did it, I confess, I'd like to get a plea deal, this is the kind of thing that they might put on the table mm. to, um, to get him to confess that he stole documents from the government and, and not expose those documents in the process. Of but they account. only, but he pleased to, okay, yes, I removed these documents, let's strike a deal. Uh, only under that statute. Uh, last week, uh, before the warrant was unsealed, Washington Post reported uh, that among the stuff that DOJ was looking for were documents containing nuclear secrets, uh, either ours or someone else's. Uh, since the unsealing of the 
inventory uh, of what the DOJ took, uh, one of the reporters who broke that story at the Post said that they did not know if any such nuclear documents related documents were recovered in the search, but that they stand by their reporting that top secret nuclear documents were, in fact, among the items being sought. Do we know any more about that either way, whether they were there or whether they remain missing or whether The Washington Post just got the story wrong? But, uh, that's a pretty reliable reporter at The Washington Post, so I doubt he got it wrong. And mm-hmm. I, it's also the kind of thing that you would expect it's the kind of seriousness that you would expect to see in an affidavit justifying the search of a president. And the other important part of it is, you know, we've talked now for 10 days about whether or not Donald Trump just declassified this. Documents pertaining to nuclear weapons can't be de- declassified by the president alone. So Thank you. it's the kind of thing that um, FBI would have put in that affidavit to say, we we know these aren't declassified because we know the other people who would have had to have been involved did not declassify it. So just let me so, uh, underscore that, because people say, oh, a, a president can uh, un, uh, declassify absolutely anything that he or she wants to. That is not actually true when it comes to certain documents uh, regarding nuclear codes and so forth. Right. Okay. And Yeah. I mean, and none of these statutes None of the statutes we've just described rely on the documents being classified. That, the, the Espionage uh-huh. Act is not about classified information. It's about what's called national defense information. Uh-huh. And again, I cover these cases, and every case, there's a point in the case where um, the prosecution says, look, it's not up to us. It's up to the jury. If the jury says it's NDI, it's NDI, and he goes to jail. You know, so so if... Even the former president is being tried by a jury of South Florida peers. <laughs> if you tell them the president stole the nuclear codes, just as an example, uh, that's the kind of thing that your average juror is going to understand immediately. Of course you can't share nuclear, you know, information on nuclear weapons. Of course not. So even if he and says, so I, de- I declassified them, it was okay, there's no law here. Uh, even there is a law there in that is. case with, with nuclear weapons there is a law now the espionage act uh, it's a very old, it's a very vague statute. It's actually the Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, as you note, it doesn't refer to classified documents. It talks to, about national uh, d- defense information, NDI, as I recall. Um, but its various sections have been used to imprison whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning, who revealed war crimes by the U.S. military, Reality Winner, who released one single document, I think, showing that Russians had gained access to voter registration systems uh, back in 2016. And its violations were even used to put Julius and Ethel Rosenberg to death in 1953. But in fact, many civil libertarians have, in fact, been critical of it, of the Espionage Act over the years because it's so vague and it's been misused. Um, So specifically, does it apply as you see it as someone who has covered the Espionage Act? Does it apply here? Uh, And is it, as we have seen in its other uses, uh, being conveniently misapplied to simply punish someone that the government is targeting, as we have seen in other cases? I think the government... I mean, first of all, like, there are two parts to the part of the Espionage Act that we're talking about, and the Mm -hmm. Rosenbergs were a third part. Mm -hmm. So there are a bunch of parts. Um, Trump 
thus far has not been accused, he's not been accused of anything, but everyone's been focusing on the steal the documents and refuse to give them back scenario. If somebody went into his archives who um, was not allowed to have that mm-hmm. do- those documents, and there's reason to believe they did, then he's in the situation like Chelsea Manning, um, who tr- who transferred stolen classified documents, even just to his secretary or to Cash Patel. Mm. That would still count as 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 transferring the documents to people who were not authorized to have it. And there's another part of the statute that. Um, says if your negligence led people who weren't authorized to have it to get it, then you're still responsible. If you know, if the um, and that was the Rosenbergs. Three, that was the Rosenbergs uh, part of the statute that was used against no. Rosenberg. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that's the the the. No, it's actually not. Um, okay. It's, it's. Um, I mean, one of the things the government has grown increasingly concerned about since 2016, because these two NSA engineers brought their hacking tools home from work and mm-hmm. they were stolen. Mm-hmm. Eventually, got it is believed to Russia, and then got back to somebody else who leaked them and led to two massive global cyber attacks, each each costing more than you know hundreds of billions of dollars of damage. Mm. Um, and and those arose from exactly the scenario that we're talking about with Trump, is mm. that somebody brought very classified documents home from work and left them there, and a foreign intelligence service came in and took them. And um, and those men are both still in prison right now, serving their term. Is there reason to believe, Marcy Wheeler, that uh, after the National Archives got back their 15 boxes earlier this year, the DOJ got, I think, about 10 boxes in in June, then another 20 boxes. They weren't all completely full, as I understand it, uh, but were taken during the uh, FBI search. Is there reason to believe that there are still, in fact, documents, whether it's those uh, nuclear secret documents I I had mentioned uh, or any other uh, that documents that are still missing that are unaccounted for uh and if so do you have any clues uh or even speculation if you like as to why that would be were they destroyed were they given away do we even know um you know i'm not going to speculate on air just because i think that uh what he's what he is alleged to have done is so bad already i mean i i think that it is it, one scenario which is very easy to see is that people took these files away from Mar-a-Lago and they're at their home in mm-hmm. Miami or something. Um, you know, the, the, the concern with the nuclear documents is early in his administration, Trump was pushing a scheme led by Mike Flynn and Tom Barak, who is going on trial next month mm-hmm. for um, his foreign ties to the Emirates and the Saudis. At that time, Trump was pushing this scheme where he was going to trade, he was going to share nuclear technology with the Saudis and the Emirates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, in the background, I think, is one of the reasons people get concerned about these nuclear documents. Not least because Jared Kushner got $2 billion from Mohammed bin Salman right, right. after the end of the administration. Right. That's the, that's the kind of, that's the scary scenario is that they ended up on a golf course in Bedminster and have since been flown out of the country. But, um, but, you know, I think it's really important to say that even just what we know is completely off the charts, even for Donald Trump. And uh, and I and I think that there are parts of it that 
every every maybe half hour or so, this flash goes through my brain, and I'm like, oh my god, Donnie has really, really screwed himself. And there are ways that I can imagine this snowballing that I think people aren't even grasping at this point. And uh, and that's all separate from the question of whether he's taken the nuclear codes and giving it given it to Mohammed bin Salman. I think people, you know, you don't need to to really get ahead of the game here to figure out that things are pretty bad. Uh, and uh, so that is the question in the just a couple of minutes that we have left here, Marcy Wheeler. You um, uh, essentially uh, you did a, a thread on this about what happens now, what happens next. You note that uh, first and foremost, DOJ likes to resolve espionage cases without indicting. Uh, I would say, A, uh, why? Why is that the case? And then B, uh, what what does happen thereafter if not? Uh, charges on espionage and, and, and the other items? Again, this is speculation, but the way I could see this playing out is that if he were, I mean, if Donald Trump found competent lawyers and was able to keep them, they might say, Don, you're screwed. Uh, and let's let's make a deal with, with DOJ. And the reason DOJ, it's not so much that they would want to avoid indicting Donald Trump, although this would have other advantages. It's that Every step of the way when you prosecute an espionage case, you need you do you do damage anew to the classified information. You have to like um, in one of the, the NSA engineers I just told you about, mm-hmm. they charged him for ten of the documents that he took home, each of which he faced a ten year sentence on. And to go to trial with that, they would have had to partly declassify those documents and go through this tedious process of of you know kind of swapping out the language to make it accessible mm-hmm. and it would have to be shared back with him or, you know, with the defendant. And the process is they do it. Uh, I just finished covering the Josh Schulte, the CIA leaks, the CIA WikiLeaks case mm-hmm. um, last month. And in that case, they were willing to go to the map because it was the biggest compromise of CIA since people like, you know, Aldrich James. Uh, in this case, they, I mean, these are, probably even more sensitive documents, so they would want to avoid that. But also, if you could walk out of this with Donald Trump going in front of his supporters and saying, you know what, they got me. I stole documents, and I admit that I stole documents, and it made all of us less safe, and I'm going to sign to this minor felony, uh, and DOJ still gets all of their stolen documents back, and they get my help trying to figure out where the three that seem to have disappeared went, uh-huh. uh, and they get to keep the documents that are proof of obstruction, I think DOJ would take that, um, not least because it would kind of ratchet down. Right now, Trump is trying to incite all of his followers yep. to make an indictment impossible. So I think that, you know, at this point, DOJ is already ca- cataloging all the information. Uh, if they are thinking of indicting, they're going to the agencies, you know, they'll go to the CIA and say, hey, uh, which of these documents would you be willing to put through a prosecution so that we can we can go indict on it? Mm-hmm. And I I would bet that those conversations are already happening. Mm. And the rest of it, they're indicting. You know, they, the rest of it, they're I'm sure they're cataloging at a very small level to figure out what else they're looking at. And as you said, whether they actually got everything back, and if they didn't, you know, we we should expect a lot more activity ahead. Yeah, well, I think uh, we will expect more activity ahead no matter what. On Monday, the um, DOJ filed a motion objecting to the unsealing of the affidavit that uh, the underlying information about 
why they did the search in the first place. They noted that, quote, disclosure of the government's affidavit at this stage would also likely chill future cooperation by witnesses whose assistance may be sought as this investigation progresses, uh, suggesting that, uh, as has been reported, there are there is a mole or more than one mole uh, very close to the uh, uh, former president who has been feeding information to the uh, to the department uh, and they note as well it might um, chill other high profile investigations so my last question Marcy Wheeler what does that tell us about uh, future cooperation by witnesses and other high profile investigations um, yesterday Maggie Haberman New York Times uh, confirmed something that I also had was going to happen, which is that a guy named Pat Philbin would have provided information to the government. He was the former White House counsel who mm-hmm. attempted to get Trump to, to return these documents for a significant part of 2021. And that made him a primary witness, mm-hmm. but he's also a witness to uh, how the White House handled documents. He's a witness. I mean, he, you know, he represented Trump for the first impeachment. Uh, he he was there through January 6th, so he knows what documents Donald Trump was ripping up then. And so having, you know, having referred this for prosecution, DOJ was going to go to the person who was most involved in trying to get Trump to turn these back, because he, he's a witness that Trump mm-hmm. refused. Mm-hmm. And he would provide that kind of information, but he also is a witness in January 6th. And so he's the kind of person, when they say, if Pat Philbin starts getting death threats and shuts up, Mm-hmm. then you're not only going to lose him for this investigation, but you're going to lose him for the January 6th investigation and probably some other investigations. And and Philbin is, you know, he's an affluent lawyer who can protect himself. Probably some of the most important witnesses here, and I, I wouldn't call them moles, I'd just call them witnesses, right. because they don't, I mean, they don't want to be, they don't want to be prosecuted along with Donald Trump for espionage. They yeah. want to make it very clear that they were not part of this attempt to, refused to give the documents back. And, you know, some of these people are going to be really junior staffers who aren't made of money and, you know, don't necessarily have access to mm-hmm. security or what have you. And those are the kind of people that are going to know some of the most important information about Donald Trump. And those are some of the people who are going to be easiest to dissuade, particularly because they, you know, also are probably paying their own legal bills mm-hmm. if they're not, if they're not. And also, of course, we've seen the way uh, that, you know, the judge, the FBI agents who's who uh, signed the warrant uh, have been, uh, you know, threatened by uh, Trump's extremist supporters at this point. I suspect uh, they don't want that either if they can avoid it. Marcy Wheeler, I've got to get out. Uh, One thing you had said earlier that has uh, been bothering me, you said that Fox News has been the most one of the most reliable sources on this story. I should note that's only because. I believe Donald Trump and his people are specifically leaking them uh, information that otherwise hasn't gotten out. Is is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I have to say, I mean, that's not fair to some, like, I think after some real kind of uh, bad reporting in the first couple of days, like Maggie Haberman has had a series of scoops. But, but some of the other people who've had scoops, scoops, if you call them that, are John Solomon, mm-hmm. the propagandist who's implicated in Rudy Giuliani's Ukraine influence operation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this story is notable in that all of the journalists who spent seven years getting access to Donald Trump really haven't gotten the scoop. 
he is keeping this so close to the breast. I'm not even sure he would have told us about the search if it hadn't been broken by a like local blogger mm-hmm. in Palm Beach. Yep. Uh, and so, so the normal the normal streams of information where we can expect to learn something approximating the truth, those are still not all the way back to order from from the beginning of the search, and and that's itself, I think, a really notable thing, because that never happened, for example, during the Mueller investigation mm-hmm. or, the, um, or the impeachment. This is something new. This is new territory. Marcy Wheeler watching closer than just about anyone else. You can watch her work at EmptyWheel.net and on the Twitters at EmptyWheel. She is, of course, independent national security journalist uh, at EmptyWheel.net. Marcy, I'm running late. I got to get out. Thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Marcy. No one uh, covers this stuff closer than Marcy. No one pays more <laughs> attention to it. No one this reads more documments. No one really uh, connects the dots and understands it. She does have better a better compre- than she does. She has a comprehensive view of of all of the different investigations yeah. that are going on. And I really appreciate that she helped to put it all into perspective about you know what bucket is here, what bucket is there, and how all of this is going to maybe play out. And the context because she has covered. Other cases, uh, you know, regarding, for example, the Espionage Act, she understands it. She understands the different sections of it, what it means, how it has been applied in the past. She has deep institutional memory. She does, and I'm delighted that she's willing to uh, come on to our show and share it. Yes. All right, we, we have to get out. Uh, once again, running long. Sorry about that, Des. Anyway, uh, my thanks again to uh, Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net, to our producer, Desi Doyen of bradblog.com and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's program or just need to hear it again because it had so much information uh, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com thanks to those of you who are kind enough to support the work that we try to do here every day over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us do exactly that. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1985. That was the day that workers at the Hormel plant in Austin, Minnesota, went out on strike. They were members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Local P9. Hormel had slashed workers' wages by 23% during the early 1980s. Benefits were also diminished and incentive programs rolled back. These changes cut deeply into the Hormel workers' earnings. What had been considered a good job was changing drastically. This was the story for many workers in Reagan-era America. The 3,500 Hormel workers voted overwhelmingly to strike. The national UFCW discouraged the action. The strike lasted more than a year. Strikebreakers were brought in 
including some of the union members who crossed the picket line to return to work. The National Guard was called in to keep the peace between strikers and the scabs. After a year, the strike went down in defeat. Even after the strike, many of the workers were not called back to work. They were put on waiting lists for a job to reopen. Some never returned to the plant. 25 years after the strike, the Austin Daily Herald staff wrote, quote, what resulted was a bitter, drawn-out labor dispute that drastically impacted the community from workers who lost their jobs to families that were torn apart by the picket lines. The strike became the feature of a documentary by Barbara Koppel. In 1990, the documentary American Dream won the Academy Award. The film tells the story of the Hormel strike as a window into the tragic experiences of many workers during the 1980s. The film was made on a shoestring budget. Singer Bruce Springsteen provided $25,000 to help support this important film. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show.